Section 3 of Revolution by Mac Reynolds. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Harvey. Paul flew into Moscow in an Aeroflot jet, landing at Venukovo Airport on the outskirts of the city. He entered as an American businessman, a camera importer, who was also interested in doing a bit of tourist sightseeing. He was traveling deluxe category, which entitled him to a zill complete with chauffeur and an interpreter guide when he had need of one. He was quartered in the Ukraina on Dorgomilovskia K, a 28-floor skyscraper with a thousand rooms. It was Paul's first visit to Moscow, but he wasn't particularly thrown off. He kept up with developments and was aware of the fact that as early as the late 1950s, the Russians had begun to lick the problems of ample food, clothing, and finally shelter. Even those products, once considered sheer luxuries, were now in abundant supply. If material things alone had been all accounted, the Soviet man in the street wasn't doing so badly. He spent the first several days getting the feel of the city and also making his preliminary business calls. He was interested in a new automated camera, currently being touted by the Russians as the world's best. Fastest lens, foolproof operation, guaranteed for the life of the owner, and retailing for exactly $25. He was told, as expected, that the factory and distribution point was in Leningrad and given instructions and letters of introduction. On the fifth day, he took the Red Arrow Express to Leningrad and established himself at the Astoria Hotel, 39 Hertzen Street. It was one of the many of the in-tourist hotels going back to before the Revolution. He spent the next day allowing his guide to show him the standard tourist sites. The Winter Palace, where the Bolshevik Revolution was won when the mutinied cruiser Aurora steamed up the river and shelled it, the Hermitage Museum, rivaled only by the Vatican and Louvre, the Alexandrakai Column, the world's tallest monolithic stone monument, the modest personal palace of Peter the Great, the Peter and Paul Cathedral, the king-size Kirov Stadium, the Leningrad Subway, as much a museum as a system of transportation. He saw it all, tourist fashion, and wondered inwardly what the in tourist guide would have thought had he known that this was a Mr. John Smith's hometown. The day following, he turned his business problem over to the guide. He wanted to meet, let's see now, oh yes, here it is, Leonid Shvernik of the McCoyan Camera Works. Could it be arranged? Of course it could be arranged. The guide went into five minutes of oratory on the desire of the Soviet Union to trade with the West and thus spread everlasting peace. An interview was arranged for Mr. Smith with Mr. Schwernick for that afternoon. Mr. Smith met Mr. Schwernick in the latter's office at two, and they went through the usual amenities. Mr. Schwernick spoke excellent English, so Mr. Smith was able to dismiss his interpreter guide for the afternoon. When he was gone, and they were alone, Mr. Schwernick went into a sales talk. 
I can assure you, sir, that not since the Japanese startled the world with their new cameras shortly after the Second War has any such revolution in design and quality taken place. The McCoyan is not only the best camera produced anywhere, but since our plant is fully automated, we can sell it for a fraction the cost of German, Japanese, or American. Paul Koslov came to his feet, quietly walked over to one of the pictures hanging on the wall, lifted it, pointed underneath, and raised his eyebrows at the other. Leonid Schwernick leaned back in his chair, shocked. Paul remained there until at last the other shook his head. Paul said in English, Are you absolutely sure? Yes, Schwernick said. There are no microphones in here. I absolutely know. Who are you? Paul said, In a movement they call you Georgi, and you're top man in the Leningrad area. Schwernick's hand came up from under the desk, and he pointed a heavy military revolver at his visitor. Who are you? he repeated. Paul ignored the gun. Someone who knows that you are Georgi, he said. I'm from America. Is there any chance of anybody intruding? Yes, one of my colleagues, or perhaps a secretary. Then I suggest we go to a bar or someplace for a drink or a cup of coffee or whatever the current Russian equivalent might be. Shvernik looked at him searchingly. Yes, he said finally. There's a place down the street. He began to stick the gun in his waistband, changed his mind, and put it back into the desk drawer. As soon as they were on the open street and out of earshot of other pedestrians, Paul said, Would you rather I spoke Russian? I have the feeling that we draw less attention than if we speak English. Shvernik said tightly, do the interest people know you speak Russian? If not, stick to English. Now, how do you know my name? I have no contacts with the Americans. I got it through my West German contacts. The Russians' face registered unsuppressed fury. Do they ignore the simplest of precautions? Do they reveal me to every source that asks? Paul said mildly, Herr Ludwig is currently under my direction. Your secret is as safe as it has ever been. The underground leader remained silent for a long moment. You're an American, eh? And Ludwig told you about me? What do you want now? To help, Paul Koslov said. How do you mean to help? How can you help? I don't know what you're talking about. Help in any way you want. Money, printing presses, mimeograph machines, radio transmitters, weapons manpower in limited amounts, know-how, training, anything you need to help overthrow the Soviet government. They had reached the restaurant. Leonid Shvernik became the Russian export official. He ushered his customer to a secluded table, saw him comfortably into his chair. Do you actually know anything about cameras? he asked. Yes, Paul said. We're thorough. I can buy cameras from you, and they'll be marketed in the States. Good. The waiter was approaching. Shvernik said, Have you ever eaten caviar Russian style? I don't believe so, Paul said. I'm not very hungry. Nothing to do with hunger, Shvernik said. From the waiter, he ordered raisin bread, sweet butter, caviar, and a carafe of vodka. The waiter went off for it, and Shvernik said, To what extent are you willing to help us? Money, for instance? What kind of money? Rubles? Dollars? And how much? 
A revolutionary movement can always use money. Any kind, Paul said flatly, and any amount. Schwernick was impressed. He said eagerly, Any amount within reason, eh? Paul looked into his face and said flatly, Any amount, period. It doesn't have to be particularly reasonable. Our only qualification would be a guarantee it is going into the attempt to overthrow the Soviets, not into private pockets. The waiter was approaching. Schwernick drew some brochures from his pocket, spread them before Paul Kosloff, and began to point out with a fountain pen various features of the McCoyan camera. The waiter put the order on the table and stood by for a moment for further orders. Schwernick said, first you take a sizable portion of vodka, like this. He poured them two jolts. And drink it down, ah, bottoms up, you Americans say. Then you spread butter on a small slice of raisin bread and cover it with a liberal portion of caviar. Good? Then you eat your little sandwich and drink another glass of vodka. Then you start all over again. I can see it could be fairly easy to get stoned eating caviar Russian style, Paul laughed. They went through the procedure and the waiter wandered off. Paul said, I can take several days arranging the camera deal with you. Then I can take a tour of the country, supposedly giving it a tourist look-see, but actually making contact with more of your organization. I can then return in the future, supposedly to make further orders. I can assure you, these cameras are going to sell very well in the States. I'll be coming back, time and again, for business reasons. Meanwhile, do you have any members among the interpreter guides in the local in-tourist offices? Schwernick nodded. Yes, and yes, that would be a good idea. We'll assign Anna Fortseva to you, if we can arrange it. And possibly she can even have a chauffeur assigned you, who will also be one of our people. That was the first time Paul Kosloff heard the name Anna Fortseva. End of Section 3. Recording by Paul Harvey.